And indeed, Father, that is once more our prayer for the grace, for the help to trust you more. Father, we thank you that, that worship, Lord, worshiping you is not one-dimensional. We can worship you in song. We can worship in the reading of Scripture. We can worship you in prayer. And Father, we can worship you through the preaching and hearing of your word. Father, I pray that as we have sought to settle our hearts in these moments together, but also look ahead and, and be equipped to serve. Father, I pray that, that now as we open the scriptures, as we look into them together, that, that as always, Father, as, as much as ever, more than ever, you would in fact be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we need you today if we're going to receive and respond, not what I want to say, but what you want to say to us. Holy Spirit, we need you as much as ever to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and to help us see Jesus. And so, Father, as we turn our attention now to the, to the book of James and the message that's here for us, we pray that we'd see Jesus clearly. Father, I pray that we'd see Jesus only. And Father, I pray that when we leave here today, stepping again out back into an uncertain world, we would leave, Father, renewed rejoicing even, Father, not that all the world's problems have gone away, but that we can step into them with the hope that the world needs. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have now, as it were, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen together, Lord, all of us, myself included, to your word, and to be changed by it. It is Jesus that we love, it is Jesus we worship, it's Jesus we seek, and it's in his name that we pray, as all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, we will not, as I think you probably know, be dismissing for Children's Church today. Uh, we're just going to have all of us remain here together. Uh, there are, as always, if you've got kids who are not used to sitting with us in the service, there are some kids' notes and bulletins in back. They're sure welcome to grab one of those and, and, and follow along in that fashion. As always, we've got the overflow uh, feed going on downstairs as well. So we, again, amidst a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of change, we're going to do our best to all uh, work together. So with that said, if you have a Bible this morning, and I hope that you do, I want you to meet me once again, once more, in James chapter 1. I want you to meet me in your Bible in James chapter 1, where we're just going to look at the, the final couple of verses of, uh, of what James has to say here, really in many ways a summation, a, a, an exclamation point of everything we've been looking at throughout the chapter um, so far. And, and as, as we do that, uh, again, it's kind of cool to think um, that though we are fewer in number here today, in fact, during prayer time with the worship team, we were kind of talking about what's the over or under here today on, on attendance. I don't know if we're over or under 100 or where we are, but, but it's fun to see all of you here, to know that you're here. It's also good to know that others are watching in. But, and I think that's really cool, but then as we were, before I came up here, I realized, you know, with the people who are watching us this morning, you guys on Facebook Live, not only can we tell if you're watching, we can go back and look who, see who watched later, but what makes me nervous is they're allowed to comment on the sermon in real time as I'm preaching, and that's always something that makes me a little nervous, I, and, I, and I always wonder what you're thinking, uh, but now I may actually find out what people are thinking. So you guys be nice who are watching at home, my son who said he'd be laying in bed watching the sermon. I bet there's a lot of pajamas out there today, um, but even so, uh, God can, this is really cool that God can help us meet together in this way. So with all of that out of the way, we need to get down to business here in James chapter 1, where this morning I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. I'm going to read all the way through verse 27, where in the span of these couple of verses, this is what the Word of God says. James writes, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, 
and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. For pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know, it may surprise you this morning to learn, if you didn't know this before, I didn't until just the other day, but it may surprise you this morning to learn that the word religion or religious appears exactly five times in the entire New Testament. The word religion or religious appears, meaning almost half of those occurrences are in the span of these two verses. And the reason I say that that may come to you as it came to me as something of a surprise, is because we are looking at, we are studying, of course, what is easily known, universally understood to be the most famous, the best-known religious book on the planet. This is a book about, we would say, the world would say, religion, and yet the mention of religion itself is very, very few times, very far between. That may surprise us. But at the same time, the more I thought about it, I, I realized that maybe... If it does, it shouldn't surprise us all that much at all because because while, while the term religion itself refers to external behavior, primarily the things we do as worshipers or followers of, of this or people of, of some other religion, uh, the term religion in its purest sense is about external behavior. Well, what do we know as followers of Jesus Christ? We know that our faith in him is primarily, first and foremost, a matter not of what we do on the outside, but of what we have received on the inside. It's a matter, first and foremost, of the heart. And And that, I believe, is a a good reminder, maybe even just a good segue for us today as we aim to wrap up our study of James chapter 1. Because last week, if you were here, you will remember, and if you weren't, you need to know that James told us in verse 22, look at verse 22 in your Bible with me right now, please. James told us last week in verse 22 that if we are serious about following Jesus, if we want to live what we say As Christians, we believe, he says, well, then we need to prove ourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers only who delude themselves. He said, that's what we need to do. Well, what I believe James, in view of that, does this morning in verses 26 and 27 is he takes a step further to explain to us how that is done. We understand what he means. Don't just show up and listen. Don't just just be a a sponge that absorbs, but be someone who takes what you hear and put it into practice. Well, he says that in a very succinct form in verse 22. Well, here in verses 26 and 27, he begins to say, as it were, now this is what I mean. Because again, look at what he said. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, that would be a doer of the word. Now, we've got the command, be a doer of the word. If anybody thinks that that's what he or she is doing, yet doesn't bridle his or her tongue, isn't into visiting widows and orphans, and doesn't keep oneself unstained by the world, well, then there's a problem. There's, there's a disconnect because these are the kind of things that doers of the word do. And while what he says in those two verses certainly isn't exhaustive, that's not everything a a genuine active follower of Jesus Christ is called to do, it's certainly representative, isn't it, of, of what Jesus would ask of us, of what Jesus would require of us, what a life of genuine devotion to the Lord is like. And and so I believe with all of that in mind, 
as we prepare to dig into exactly what he means by what he says, let me just say that I think it's rather timely, given the day we're living in, the, the circumstances we're even meeting among here this morning. What James has to say in these couple of verses really, in many ways, couldn't be more timely. And, and while we kid around about things like coincidences around here, I don't think it's coincidental at all that we are in these two verses on this particular day, given what's going on, not just in our culture, but, but around the world. And so to that end, I'm not going to be entirely bringing it to that point, but we're going to see along the way how timely and fitting it is. But to that end, what I want to show you, simply put this morning in this passage, are three things that James says to us about the kind of devotion God desires. James says, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. All right, we're with him that far. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What kind of devotion does our Heavenly Father want from us? Well, James says three things in response to that question, the first of which is this. The first thing he tells us in verse 26 about the kind of devotion God desires for us as followers of Jesus in a fallen world is that we would be people, first of all, number one, who shift the narrative toward Jesus Christ. The kind of devotion God desires from you and me is that as we live life in this fallen world, we would be people who shift the narrative toward Christ. Now, if you've read ahead in the book of James, as I know many of you certainly have, you already know that that in the chapters to follow, James is going to have a whole lot to say about the tongue about our speech and its power for, for good or, or for evil. But really, the essence of his message, of what he's going to unpack later, is all wrapped up right here in verse 26, when he says, if you think yourself to be religious, believer, and yet you don't bridle your tongue, you are deceiving yourself. If you think yourself religious and don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian and you can't control your mouth, you're doing damage to the cause. That's what he's saying. You know, long ago, and thankfully in a galaxy far, far away, and you've probably had experiences like this too, but I worked for a Christian contractor. We were in the the painting business, and again, it was long ago, a place far from here, so it's not anybody that any of you know. But we openly presented ourselves as a Christian contractor business, all right? Uh, The business itself had a Bible-sounding name. All of the business cards and yard signs had a Jesus fish on them. We were very open about the fact from the boss on down that we were church-going people and therefore presumably trustworthy and reliable in what we do. But what I learned rather quickly is that while most of the time anyway we did good work, most of the time we did a good job, discovered that the man I worked for, though a Christian and presenting himself to our community as such, was a perpetual daily source of criticism, of slander, of anger, of, frankly, we were living in the south of of racism in many ways, and, and oftentimes about the very people who'd hired us to work for them. And it just, you know, looking back, I'm like, I wish I would have known how to handle that better. I have a lot of regrets about that time. But it's just what we were presenting and what I was seeing and experiencing, the two things didn't match up as far as what a follower of Jesus Christ should do. And it's, and it's easy to, you know, sort of bang on people like that and situations like that. But the more I think about it, what I realize is I do the same thing in my own way at times. And so do you. My, my talk fails to match my talk, right? <laughs> 
I say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and then because it's the single most difficult thing in all of our lives to control, what comes out of my mouth doesn't always square. In certain ways, different ways, and to different degrees, all of us as believers, we have written, we have said, we have posted to social media things that on second glance, in retrospect, at some point down the line, hopefully very quickly, we realize, whoa, that just bore witness to an unbridled tongue, to something in my heart that doesn't match my faith. And and of course, when it happens in the moment, because it's going to happen to us all, the right thing to do is to repent, right? To acknowledge, I did this wrong, I hurt some people, and I need to to go before the Lord, need to do what I can to make it right. We're all going to do that, and that's the solution. If we sin, we confess our sin, and he's faithful to forgive us. But when it's habitual, and that's what James is talking about here, when gossip, when slander, when half-truths are a pattern, They're just the way we roll, more often than not. Well, James says it. I I don't say it. James says it right here. And of course, he's speaking for the Lord. He says, if that's the way we roll as believers, this man, this woman, this young person's religion is worthless. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But it means you're, frankly, no good to the cause of pointing others to the truth and the hope and the joy that is in Jesus Christ. This is a problem. But interestingly, if you look again at verse 26, at least interesting to me, is that his solution to such a problem, an unbridled tongue, isn't silence. He doesn't say, so therefore just stop talking. So therefore, stop posting. Therefore, stop communicating with other people. Now, we might say, that's what you ought to do. I mean, there is this thing uh, somewhere that Jesus said, hey, if your hand offends you, cut it off. And if your eye offends you, cut it out. So maybe if your tongue offends you, just cut it out. Well, that's not what James says here at all. In verse 26, his solution, his answer isn't silence, it's self-control. The spiritual fruit of Self-control. If anyone thinks him or herself to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, they deceive themselves. So what's the solution? Bridle your tongue. Learn what it means to control under the Holy Spirit with the help of God himself. The things that you say, the things that you speak, the things that you communicate with others. Because here's the thing, while as I'm laying out for you here, and again, you know this uh, probably implicitly already, while the words we say and the things we post and the thoughts we communicate do in fact have enormous power to do great damage, you know what the things we say and post and write and communicate also have enormous power to do? Shine a light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point lost, scared, hopeless people to the hope and the security and the peace that's found in Jesus. What I'm saying to you this morning is you, everybody say me, you have enormous potential to shift the narrative toward Christ. In fact, it's your assignment and it's mine As well, whether that means we openly share the gospel or we simply seize, as we're going to need to do this week, any opportunity the Lord brings our way to express His love as someone we're with exposes their heart. They expose their heart, we express 
his love. And that, I would submit to you, is why all of us need daily time with the Lord. It's why all of us need regular times of prayer. It's why we need to be students of the word every day. Because not only will doing those things, spending time with the Lord in prayer and in his word and, and, and gathering as best we're able for worship on Sunday, not only will that cause us, help us to flourish, it will enable us and equip us to help others to flourish, to find Jesus Christ and move toward maturity in him. So what kind of devotion does God desire from us? Well, he desires, first of all, according to James, devotion that shifts the narrative toward Jesus Christ, that bridles my speech, my tongue in a way. It doesn't tear down, but but points people toward hope in Christ. That's the first thing he says. The second is this. As we move out of verse 26 and into verse 27, James says the second kind of devotion or a second dimension of devotion God desires for those who wish to be doers of the word is not only do we shift the narrative toward Christ, but we live lives that are tilted toward the weak. We live lives that are tilted, directed the weak. You know, by definition, we all know that people like police officers and firefighters and military personnel, that, that what they sign up to do and therefore what we expect of them and we know that they are willing to do is run into danger when the rest of us are running away from it, right? That is by definition what what such people, is why we call them public servants, right? They're willing to do things. They've agreed to do things that the rest of us want to stay as far away from as possible. They're the ones who go headlong into danger. It's why we respect them so much. It's why we esteem them so much. I mean, even today, despite all that's going on, the reason we live in relative security, is there are people there who are willing to do that so that we can be here. But, you know, historically, if you look at 2,000 years of church history, that is also... Quite often, what genuine followers of Jesus Christ have been known for as well in times of extremity. Now, not always, not exclusively, certainly not perfectly. We've made our mistakes. I don't want to have that conversation today. What I do want to say is this. If you look at the history, if you follow the course of, of the church of Jesus Christ, quite often, more often than not, if they're not the only ones, Christians are usually have been at the tip of the spear in times of persecution, in times of plague, in times of hardship, saying, while everybody else is running for the hills, we are going to do, what are we going to do? We're going to protect the vulnerable. We're going we're to minister to the needy. We're going to clothe and feed those who are lacking. We are going to sit with and minister to and care for the dying. Does that sound timely to anybody besides me this morning? Yes, we may be frightened. Yes, we're living in the same uncertainty as everyone else, but we have a different mandate. We're called to, to stand firm, if not step into the danger for the sake of those who need Jesus Christ. What I'm asking is, will we choose to be tilted toward the weak? In our daily lives. Again, whether or not anyone else sees us, applauds us, or puts us on the news for it. But is that our way of life? Because, because that, James says in verse 27, look at your Bible, is absolutely what pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is all about. What? Visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Now, orphans and widows, that is both a, a literal particular as well as a, a broad general reference to society's weakest members. To say, look, I, I as a believer, I recognize, I'm, I've got my antenna up to where there is need, to where people are hurting 
And, and because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if I can't step into it myself, I'm going to figure out a way to be part of the plan and on the team of those who are, those who are typically overlooked by others. Now, where did James get that idea? That pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father means go into society's weakest members. He got it from his brother, <laughs> Jesus. Because what was Jesus known for? In fact, what was Jesus maligned for? Dining with prostitutes, hanging with drinkers, embracing lepers, befriending tax collectors, letting the little children come to him, speaking to Samaritan women by a well. It's the way Jesus lived his life. And it's, it's where James, of course, got the idea. And, and throughout all those three and a half years of ministry, what was Jesus doing? Well, as he was going about those, those particular steps, those particular interactions, he was just gently, through simple acts of mercy, winning people to saving faith, helping them find hope in the Lord. You know, in 1904, some of you may know this story, there was a young man by the name of William Borden. He was 16 years old. He was heir to the Borden family fortune. You've seen Borden's condensed milk in the store, right? Well, that family, well, they were multi-millionaires. And, and in 1904, William Borden, their son, heir to the family fortune, was 16 years old, and he graduated from high school in Chicago. And for a graduation parents, uh, present, his parents sent him on a round-the-world trip by sail and by rail, spanning the globe, going to foreign countries to see, as few others had opportunity to do in those days, what the rest of the world was like. Now, William Borden and his family were believers. And on the course of that round-the-world journey to all sorts of places, William Borden began to be convicted about the need and, and the call to world missions. In fact, on that trip, he decided, that's what I want to do with my life. I don't want to take over the milk factory. I want to, I want to tell people in hard places about Jesus. And so he began to write this, these growing convictions back to family and friends. And of course, as you might imagine, the response to that was mixed. You know, some people were you know, really excited about the fact that he was, he was thinking in this way, and others are thinking, well, you're throwing your life away. Look at all that money. Look at all that opportunity. Look at what you could do. In fact, one of his friends specifically wrote back to him and said, William, you are throwing your life away to be a missionary. And in response, you know what William Borden did? He took his Bible and opened it up to the back page, and on the fly leaf inside the cover, he wrote two words, no reserves. I will hold nothing back as a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, that fall, William Borden, having returned from his journey, enrolled, again, 16 years old, as a freshman at Yale University. And as the story goes, very, very quickly, his classmates, his fellow freshmen, began to realize there's something different about this guy, and it wasn't just that he was loaded. It was that he loved Christ, that he had a deep, unusual devotion to the Lord. One of them wrote later on, looking back, that, quote, William Borden came to college spiritually far ahead of all the rest of us, for he had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ. As evidence of this, it's recorded that during William Borden's first semester at Yale, he started something that would quickly transform campus life, a small morning prayer group of he and two other of his friends in the dorm. They would meet together once a week to pray for missions, to pray for the world, to pray for revival, and, and very quickly, that's something that spread across the campus. By the end of his freshman year, 150 of such groups were meeting. 
By the end of his senior year, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting every single week to pray for the cause of Christ. But his, his ministry, even as a young man, wasn't just confined to the campus. The story continues that, that he also was known, particular in view of James chapter 1, even as a young man, for his deep compassion for widows and orphans and the disabled. He was known on a regular basis to rescue drunks from the city streets. And in order to rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of his friends wrote that William, quote, might often be found in the lower parts of the city late at night, on the street, in a cheap lodging house, or in some restaurant to which he'd taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking always to lead men to Jesus Christ. Well, eventually, over the course of those four years, William Borden's missionary call narrowed. Of all the places he's visited, there's one he wanted to go back to. It was to the the Muslim Kanzu tribe people of inland China. He says, that's just where God wants me to go. Those people need Jesus. And so he began to narrow his focus. And, and it said that once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. And, and upon graduation, after turning down multiple high-paying, high-powered, high-intensity jobs, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, he wrote the words, no retreats. No matter what the world sets in front of me. Uh, this is the path I'm on. Well, from there he went on. There's more to the story. After graduating from Yale, he went to Princeton Seminary. Apparently in those days that was still a good idea for, uh, for Bible study. <laughs> but he went to Princeton, and then immediately upon finishing his studies at Princeton, he set sail for China. But because he was hoping to work among Muslim people, planning to work among Muslim people, he planned as part of his journey to first spend time in Egypt where he could learn the Arabic language. Because Muslims have a Koran, they believe you've got to read it in Arabic and study it in Arabic. And he thought, well, if I'm going to go to these people, I better know my stuff. So he sailed from Princeton to Egypt where, while studying, early on in those studies, William Borden contracted spinal meningitis and within a month he was dead. 25 years old. And it was worldwide news. This young man, heir to a multi-million dollar fortune, gives it all up to go serve Jesus and dies before he ever gets to the field. What a waste. That was the consensus among the, the world in general. What a waste. But from God's perspective, it wasn't a waste. And in fact, from William Borden's own perspective, it wasn't a waste because shortly before he died, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No regrets. That is the story of a life tilted toward the weak. And it shows that you don't have to be on the other side of the globe to do it. He served the Lord where he was with the people he met as a way of life. And while the way it's going to unfold for you is different, the way it unfolds for me is different. I'm not called to the Muslim Kanzu people of China. You probably aren't either, but you're called to somebody. And all around us, and again, given the times we're living in more than ever, isn't it evident that we're a whole lot weaker and lonelier and needier than, than as a society we like to think? And I would submit to you on the authority of God's word that though you may never be called to China, your impact can be just as great. If you yield to Jesus Christ, 
if you, if you step into the danger rather than away from it. And we realize that it's the kind of devotion God desires. He wants us to shift the narrative toward Christ. He has called us to live lives tilted toward the weak. And then there's one more thing. We'll look at it and then we're done. And in many ways, it's just a, a conglomeration, a, a melding of what we've seen so far. But as you come to the end of verse 27, James says there's one more thing we need to know about being doers, not merely hearers of the word, and it's this, that the kind of devotion God desires is a life that is marked by nonconformity. That we live lives that are marked by, that are known for their nonconformity. You know, as I was looking at and just reading and rereading these couple of verses throughout the week, it, it occurred to me, and I found it very, very curious, that of the three things that James mentions that we're talking about here, bridling our tongues and ministering to the weak, and, and, and then what he says here at the end of verse 27, I, I found it very interesting that as you look at your Bible, look at the end of verse 27, keeping oneself unstained by the world was the last of the three things James mentions. Now, of course, by the world, what James means is the world system. The fact that, as we talked about earlier, we live in a world that is dominated by sin. It is broken, and it is stained, and, and it is anti-everything Christ. It is a system that, 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 that insists that, that money talks, that might makes right, that, that you'll only live once, so get all you can. And, and daily, as believers, we are... We are beckoned to buy into that system. And James says, oh, no, 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 no. The kind of devotion God desires is to keep oneself unstained by the world, un, un, unmarked by the world's way of thinking. And, and the reason that, that I say that, that its placement here intrigues me is because if you think about it, that's what most people, and, and even a lot of Christians, think is the most important thing, right? The most important thing you can do as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing you can, can do that true religion is all about is playing by the rules to keep God happy. Don't mess up. Don't go where they go. Don't do what they do. Don't look at what they look at. Keep yourself unstained by the world. But my theory, that's all it is, you can... You can think differently about it, but I think that by listing it last, that's not an accident. Because by listing it last, don't get me wrong, James isn't saying that keeping oneself unstained by the world isn't important, or that it's less important than the other two things. But what I do think he's implying is that it's not more important. Because for some people, keeping yourself unstained by the world, even as believers, that's the only thing. Just get as far away from it as possible and, and hang out in your house. In fact, this, all this distancing, this is like, for some people, this is the perfect opportunity. Just retreat and wait for Jesus to come back, right? That's what it's all about. And he says, no, 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 no. No. For some people, keeping yourself unstained by the world is, is what true religion is in some total. James is saying, no, 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 it's important, but it's not more important. He's saying that, that shifting the narrative toward Christ He's saying that living a life tilted toward the weak and nonconformity with the ways of the world are three equal legs on the same wooden stool. It's all part of the equation. It's all part of the deal. And here's the irony of it. Because while nonconformity, 
keeping oneself unstained by the world does seem by definition to demand separation. Well, what that means is get away as far away from the world as possible. Don't let those filthy sinners you know, sling any of their mud on you. Don't get involved with what they're doing, with what they're doing. The very opposite is what's true. Who was more engaged with the world than William Borden? Who was more engaged with the times in which she lived than Mother Teresa? <laughs> Who's more engaged with the realities, the gritty realities of the world than the many of the missionaries we know and support and who we love and we esteem because they're the ones running into the danger instead of away from it? And yet, what do we find? They aren't sinking in a cesspool of sin. They're not wandering into iniquity meadow and, and whatever else. They're actually flourishing. William Borden flourished. Mother Teresa flourished. Those stepping into the hot zones of the world seem to flourish. And the real kicker of it is that such nonconformity isn't just possible, it's imperative. Jesus says so himself. We'll put it on the screen so you can follow along from Matthew 25. Jesus is painting a picture of the last day, the judgment seat, when all is said and done. And it says this in Matthew 25, 34, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Can you see how that encompasses everything we've talked about this morning? Bridled tongues shifting the narrative toward Christ. Stepping in to lives and situations of weakness. Being nonconformist. Being in the world, but not of it. That's the devotion God desires. And there may be, may yet to be, there may never have been a more timely moment in many of our lives than the one we're living in to put these things into practice today. You know, in a way, if you think about it, everybody on the planet's religious. Even those who claim to be not religious are religious. Because deep down inside, everybody's got their own idea of good and bad, right and wrong, you know, wickedness and, and righteousness, life and death, time and eternity. Everybody's religious. Everybody lives by some sort of rule. And, and even among those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, there's a wide array of opinion. I've already alluded to that this morning of, of what good Jesus followers should and shouldn't do. What is a life of pure and undefiled religion? But to be totally blunt as we draw this to a close, James's message here for all of us this morning is this it's time to lose your religion. It's time to lose my religion, to put whatever in my life, even as a follower of Jesus who's seeking to flourish and to grow, doesn't square, doesn't align with the kind of things James is saying here, to put those things aside and get in line with Jesus. And that's why today's big idea is that all of us as believers should live in a way that replicates Christ. That's really what it's all about. We've used a lot of words to say something very simple. We are to live in a way that replicates Christ wherever we go, to whoever we meet, and whatever the times are in which we happen to live. Father, it's easier said than done. 
I admit that readily this morning, easier said than done. But Father, in a way, the times we live in, as fearful as the current virus and everything associated with it seems to be, and and it is, Father, there's real reason for concern. Father, it, it, it is easier to retreat. It's easier to step back. It's easier to scoff at all those crazy people crying about toilet paper and and realize the reason they're doing it is because they don't know Jesus. They don't have hope. And we've got it. Father, I don't know what it's going to mean for each one of us here this morning, those of us in our church family watching from home, Father, to to step into the danger, to, to be tilted toward the weak, Father, some of us need to repent of the ways that we have spoken, not just in this moment, but but in many moments. Father, some of us, myself included, need to repent and do repent of, of tilting away from the weak and saying it's somebody else's job. And Father, we, we need to repent. We need to, to rid ourselves of the idea that the best way to make a difference is to be as like those around us as possible. Father, I think the world's looking for something different. I think that lost people are worth looking for something better. Father, we do want to be people of pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our Heavenly Father. Father, today, as much as any other day, I pray that you take the things of truth that we've considered here this morning and seal them up in our hearts and move them to our hands and feet. And you cause all the rest just to be forgotten so that we leave ready to serve only Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.